You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord. You alone are awesome and worthy to be praised. The sweet name of Jesus, a name that was given. A name that, dear Lord, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And we just praise you. We give you all the glory, Lord. Our prayer is give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart, dear Lord. Let us not lift our souls up to anything else. Father, we pray, dear Lord, even as we've spent time in worship, just glorifying and praising the most precious gift that you've ever given mankind, your son, Jesus. We thank you, dear Lord, and we give you glory. And we ask you right now, dear Lord, just as our hearts have been made open open to worship, now may they be open to your word. May you speak to us in such a way that, dear Lord, our lives will never be the same. May we always walk out of this place so changed in our hearts that, dear Lord, people will see a difference almost immediately in us. And Lord, we'll give you the glory. Lord, cleanse me. Let me be a vessel that you can use, dear Lord. May there be nothing that would hinder your word through, uh, through me, dear Lord. And I pray, dear Lord, that for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room, that their prayer is, God, tender my heart. May I receive your word. God, cleanse me. If there's anything that would hinder what you want to say to me today, just remove it. Cleanse me. Let me be a vessel that can receive your word. And we'll give you the glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I operate on autopilot. Anybody operate on autopilot? You ever drove on autopilot? Raise your hand if you've ever driven on autopilot. Does anybody know even what I mean when I say that? The idea of of driving on autopilot is simply this, and, and I want to say right now, it is good to see my dear friend Mark Bowman and his family. I tell you what, we always love Mark. And, and, and I know Mark, see, I know Mark. Mark's always praying that I get sick at the last minute and I call him so that he gets to preach for me. See, so I always think about that on Sunday morning. He's hoping I get a stomach bug or something and we'll say, Mark, can you, can you step in for me? But uh, great guy. We love Mark, Beth, and, and, and their family. Good to have them here today. But I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I operate on autopilot. In other words, I'm driving my vehicle and my mind just simply disengages. I don't know what happens to it, but it just disengages. And I'm going along there and all of a sudden I'll kind of come to and I'll think, you know, where am I? You know, (laughs) where am I? Or how did I get here? I don't remember passing that or, you know, and, and, and I realize that I'm on autopilot. Now, let me say this. Um, Christmas Day, in a lot of ways, I was on autopilot. I got here early in the morning, began to try to get everything ready, and then stand 
uh, Lewis showed up. We others begin to show up. Mark and, and volunteers begin to show up. We all begin to we all begin to get everything ready, and then vans begin to go out, begin to bring these ho- the homeless men and women in, and we begin to to try to make their Christmas a little bit better. And to be honest with you, some of that I was on autopilot. I was just simply doing what I've been doing for probably the last fourteen or fifteen years. And, and afterwards, about, uh, about 12.30, we had some people that were kind enough to stay. Ledge and I left, and I'm still on autopilot. I'm driving home. My mind is a thousand miles away. And, and, I, and I walk into, I park my vehicle. I walk into the house where the family is already gathered. Sheila's getting Christmas meal, has been getting Christmas meal together. I walk through the kitchen, speak to the family, walk around the corner. And, I, and, and as I walked around the corner, I looked at the couch because there was somebody who's always there sitting on the couch on my right. And almost as I came around that corner, I said, where is... And I almost said, Mom. And it was like for a moment, I realized I'm not on autopilot anymore. Mom's not here. You see, I don't know about you, but usually what happens is if we're driving and we're on autopilot... What will happen is something will interrupt that and we'll kind of snap to and we'll look around and it'll kind of, it'll kind of wake us up. And, and so that's, that's autopilot. And I want to encourage you today that sometimes what can happen to you and I is spiritually we can get on autopilot. Is that right? You ever, you ever think that? Sometimes spiritually, not only are, can we drive on autopilot, but sometimes spiritually we get on autopilot. You see, I was on autopilot until something interrupted that. And that was the fact that when I came around that corner, my mom was not there, and it was the reality. And some of you have lost a loved one this year, and you understand exactly what I'm talking about. You know, what gets us off autopilot? What turns off autopilot is often an interruption. And so I guess in in some ways today, I want to speak to you spiritually about getting off autopilot and beginning to take back control of your life spiritually. Now, Now, let me say this. I understand that ultimately the Holy Spirit is what controls our life. Paul said be filled. He uses the imperative there. Be filled with the... You want to finish it? What is it? Be filled with what? The Holy Spirit. You see, being filled with the Holy Spirit just simply means to be under the control and the influence of the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, that's what we want. But the reality is is that sometime in your life and in my life, we spiritually are an autopilot, and there's some things that we need to get involved in, and we need to take back control. And all God's people said... Amen. You see, I understand the role of the Holy Spirit, but God has involved me into this process called sanctification. You know, we've talked about that word. The word hagias is the word for holy. The word sanctification in the Greek is hagiosmos. In other words, what God is doing in your life and in my life, He is in the process of changing us, conforming us into the image of who? into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So hagiosmos is God's process, sanctification, by which God is chipping away all those things that don't look like Jesus, and He's trying to make me holy. 
But I want you to understand something, that you and I, sanctification is just not... In fact, there's a theological position called quietism, where it just simply is this belief that I just need to surrender, let go and let God. I just need to sit quietly and let God do everything. My friend, the Bible says, purify yourselves. Draw near to God. You and I are involved in sanctification. So here is a process, and maybe this time, during this particular time, as we're closing out 2013, 2013, and we're looking toward 2014, maybe we need to do some inventory here. Maybe we need an interruption. Maybe we need to step back and take a long, hard look at our life. This is a great transitional time. It is a time for thought, a time for evaluation, a time for reflection. Uh, physically, you may physically look at your body and say, wow, what happened to me this year? You may physically say, you know, hey, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You ought to take care of it. You know, I thank God that Billy Graham has taken care of his body. And even in his 90s, mid-90s, is still giving leadership to this country spiritually. Do you realize that the way you take care of your body can affect how you do your ministry? So it may be some physical things, emotional things. You may need to emotionally begin to examine your life or academically, mentally. When was the last time you read a book? (laughs) Hey, let's face it. This has ruined us, hasn't it? We are so electronically driven now through TV through iPads, through many iPads, through telephones and iPhones and everything else. Listen, we don't even know what it is to read a good book anymore. So maybe this year academically, mentally, you know, I always use that acrostic sap, spiritual, uh, maybe doing a spiritual inventory, an academic inventory, and a physical inventory, that idea of sap in a tree. But this is a great time for you and I to take a long, hard look at our life. You know, in our Sunday school class this morning, Alan Tisdale made this statement. He said, you know, I'm, I'm dissatisfied with some things in my life. Let me ask you something. Everybody look this way. Are you dissatisfied about some things in your life spiritually? You may say, well, you know, I feel pretty good right now. Well, you know, I don't know if that's a good place to be. Because I think spiritually in our lives, we ought to always be excelling. We are hagiosmos, sanctification. We're being conformed into the image of who? Anybody there yet? Raise your hand. Please don't. (laughs) You see, God is conforming, transforming you and I. And, and, And maybe there needs to be a little bit, a measure of dissatisfaction. In fact, if there's not a measure of dissatisfaction, you know what you need? You need a BHF. You know what a BHF is? A brutally honest friend. I raised one of those. His name is Ledge. (laughs) Do you have somebody in your life? You know, that was a premise behind the book I wrote, Killing the Church, that all of us need a brutally honest friend. We need somebody that can get in our face and be honest with us about ourselves. You see, because sometimes we won't do that, will we? 
And so this idea of maybe a life coach, a sergeant, a coach, or a, or, or a, a trainer, or a, a pastor. You know, sometimes as a pastor, when I'm preaching, I finish, I go to the door, and some people will look at me and say, wow, you really stepped on my toes today. Let me say this. I would rather you, I want you to be either mad. I don't mind you being mad at me. Some people have been mad at me. A lot of them ain't here anymore either. Some people get mad. Some people get glad. Some people get sad. But you know what the, you know, you know what the tragedy of the church in America is today? Is that people can sit apathetic and indifferent and have no response and walk out unmoved. So it doesn't bother me if you're mad, sad, or glad. You see, so think of me today maybe in some ways of giving you and I a spiritual reality check, uh, a, a time to look again at our lives and maybe to make some changes uh, to get us off autopilot spiritually. So take your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 12. You there? Say amen. amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. You don't have a Bible, get near somebody who does. Because you need to see this. Now, the reason that I'm preaching on this passage is because God had already begun to lay this on my heart, and then somebody gave Sheila and I a gift, and it had, it had to do with this passage here. And so I felt like, God, this is you saying something to all of us. So in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, Paul said, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, uh, we'll skip over verse 14 if you're Baptist and go on to verse... No, I'm teasing. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a, crick, in a crooked and depraved generation. And watch this, in which you shine like stars in the universe. As you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, now Paul's talking to a church, a church by the, in, a, in a town called Philippi. It was there in Greece. It was the first European church. And Paul was, uh, if you remember, in Acts chapter 16, Paul got thrown into prison. Everybody remember that? He got thrown into jail. And while he is in jail, he and Silas, they're singing hymns and they're worshiping in jail. Boy, isn't that great? You ever been at a difficult point in your life or a place in your life? Things are not working out. Everything seems to be going wrong. And yet you begin to rejoice and you just give praise. and go In everything, give what? Bob Smith said this when his son Bob Jr. died. He said it was a life-changing moment. He said that boy was such a pivotal part of our life. And, it, and, and when Bob Jr. was killed in a, on a motorcycle, hit by a semi-truck, he said my wife and I, he and Betty, went through agonizing weeks and months of remorse, regret, just thinking if we'd have just stopped him, if we'd have done this and that. And he said, we just lived with that. Till one day, he said, we were laying in bed at night. 
And he said it was, it was dark and we were crying. And all of a sudden, Bob said, he said to Betty, he said, you know, Betty, the Bible says in everything, give thanks. Why don't we right now just start thanking God for the time we had with our son and the impact and the influence that he had in our lives? He said, we begin to do that. In everything, give thanks. And he said, God begin to take away some of that pain and that hurt. And we begin to feel ourselves being revived spiritually. Paul was in prison. Silas was in prison. Acts chapter 16, they're singing, they're worshiping when all of a sudden an earthquake comes and it shakes everything in the jail loose and the shackles and everything begin to fall off the prisoners. Paul and Silas are free. And if you remember, the Philippian jailer was getting ready to kill himself. And right before he's going to kill himself, Paul hollered and said, don't do that. Don't do that. We're all here. Nobody's left. We're all here. The Philippian jailer later washed the wounds of Paul. Paul shared Christ, he and Silas, and the Philippian jailer and his entire family were baptized and saved. He, along with Lydia, started this church in Philippi. It was the first church in Europe. Haley's Bible handbook says this about the church at Philippi. Mark, this is the kind of church you want to pastor. He said it was the purest church in the entire New Testament. Wow. What a statement to be made. So so here Paul is in prison. Now Paul hasn't been to the church at Philippi in 10 years. He planted that church. Well, no, he had planted that church 10 years ago. And it had been three or four years since Paul had been at the church at Philippi. And now Paul's in prison in Rome. and, And Paul gets a visit from a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Epaphrodites comes to him, and Epaphrodites begins to... Well, first of all, he's sick, but when he comes, he brings, he brings encouragement to Paul. He brings an offering to Paul, he, uh, uh, and he spends time with Paul. In fact, he gets thrown into prison along with Paul. And so Paul eventually writes back this letter and gives counsel to this church. Now, I want to give you three quick points about how to be a star for Jesus Christ. You want to be a star? You want God to, if you're, if you're, if you're role this year, you say, God, shake me out of this spiritual apathy, this autopilot. God, I want to be a star for you this year. I want you to use me in a great and mighty way this way. I want to be an instrument in your hand. Let me give you three points that will make you a star in the kingdom of God. Number one, you ready? Say amen. When obedience is critical in your life, then you'll become a star. You see, people that are used greatly by God, obedience, number one, is critical. Paul says it in verse 12. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always, look at that, always obeyed. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine a parent pointing to a child and saying, one thing I'll say about that boy or that daughter, son or daughter of mine, they always obey me. Wow. Paul said to this church at Philippi, he said, you always obey me. Look at this, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Paul said, listen, you are shining like a... And he's going to get to that in verse 15. You're going, he says, you are like stars on the, on the canvas of this creation. And the reason being is because obedience is critical in your life. And it's not just publicly obeying... It's obeying privately. In fact, I wrote this down. Public is who we think you are. 
private is who God knows you and I are. You see, public is what you think I am. Private is what God knows I am. If a man or woman wants to be used mightily by God, obedience is critical to their life. They're not so much worried publicly what people think, they're worried privately what God thinks. Paul said, you don't just obey me when when I'm around, you obey and you heed my counsel as your spiritual leader when I'm not around. Paul says, and then Paul, watch what he goes on to say here. He says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, work it out. He doesn't say work it up. He doesn't say work for it. In fact, uh, turn, take a, take a left over to the previous book. Go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's, let's see it again. We went through this book last year. But Ephesians chapter 2, picking up at verse 9. Because what Paul is not saying here is, is to work for. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, Paul said this, For it is by grace... Let's all say amen. It is by grace. Amen. You, you see, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great verse? You and I will never earn our salvation. We'll never be good enough for God. God's Word tells us that we're saved by grace, unmerited, undeserved love that has been given to us. Now, Paul says here, he's not saying work for. Paul is saying here, work out. What does he mean? He uses the present imperative here. It is the command to keep on continuing. Paul says here, he says, listen, work out. He uses the present imperative, which is a command. Paul is saying for you and I, he's saying, listen, don't stop, don't give up, Keep on allowing God. In fact, John MacArthur said this in a commentary or something that he spoke on. He said 60 years before Christ was ever born, an academic, uh, a scholar in Rome used this same terminology when he was talking about minds in Rome. In other words, what Rome would do, Rome would buy, the government would buy mines, and they would take miners, and they would go down in those mines to begin to bring up out of those mines valuables. He says Paul is very clear here. What Paul is saying is, is that God sees all of the riches, all of the things in your life and my life, and through the power of His Holy Spirit, He's trying to mine or bring those up and to bring them out of the deep recesses of our hearts. God is in the process of not only working salvation in us, but He's trying to bring something out of us. He goes on to make this statement. He said, and let me say this, that not only means good experiences, that means bad experiences. Have you ever been going through something and God begins to speak to you and tell you a lesson that you're learning through that? Have you ever gone through some difficulty, a financial difficulty, a relationship problem, a problem with your children, or something's going wrong at work, and all of a sudden God begins to speak, and He begins to say, the reason we're going through, we, the reason we're going through this is there's something that I want you to see about my character and something I want you to see about your character. 
You see, this is what God's doing. And if I'm on, if, listen, if I'm on autopilot, then I can allow many of the experiences that God's bringing into my life to never be mined out and for God to teach me some things that God's trying to teach me. Let me tell you what God says. He says, for all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. You see, what God's doing is God is digging down deep within the resources of your personality, in your character, in your life, using those experiences to draw out some things. That's the only way He could do it, by doing it that way. I'm going to tell you, folks, listen to me. Sometimes God may be trying to break you. Did you hear me? Sometimes God takes us through experiences over and over and over again because God's in the process of trying to break us. A.W. Tolzer said this. He said, I doubt God will use a man greatly until he breaks him deeply. Wow. If you'll look, those people that have made the greatest difference for the kingdom of God are those people who have been broken through just unbelievable circumstances and experiences and situations. Look at Bob Smith. He lost his oldest son. He lost a baby. He lost his eyesight. He lost his business. He literally was at one point on the side of the road after having about six or seven accidents in one week and he called his wife Betty. He was a representative for Procter & Gamble. He was a sales rep. He called Betty and said, Betty, I can't see. Come get me. And few men I know have been used any greater than, than Bob Smith. You see, sometimes what God is doing, God is digging down through our experiences. So Paul says here, it's present imperative. He says, listen, this is a command. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he uses the word there for fear, phobos, where we get our word phobia, agoraphobia, the fear of the marketplace. He says, listen, you do it with fear and trembling. Well, what's that mean? Is Paul talking about fear or dread or terror? Listen to what Ron Ryder translated this word phobia. He said phobos, or pho- this word phobia, is defined as fear, dread, or terror. If you have agoraphobia, that is you have a fear of the marketplace, of public places. Now, he says here, it would normally be defined as fear, dread, or terror. But in this instant, Paul is using it In another way, it's used for a fear. Now, ladies, stay with me if you're married. A fear or a reverence for one's husband. You know, well, let me me read to you this quote. Maybe this will help. A wife who doesn't want to... it's, it's, It's indicative of a wife who does not want to disappoint her husband. It is a love mixed with respect slash fear that she would possibly lose his approval. She values his approval, and this word was used of a wife toward her husband. Does that make sense? In other words, this is the picture of saying, if you ask Sheila, do you, do you love Jeff? Yes, I love him more than anybody else in all the world, even, even our own children or grandchildren. Do, do you respect him? Yes, I respect him. What he is in public is what he is in private. If you ask her, do you fear him? Now, you may cause her to step back a minute, but she probably would say yes. There's a measure of fear slash reverence slash 
respect. This is the position of the bride of Christ. Though we have the unconditional agape love of Christ, we also have a a measure of reverence slash respect, fear. Does that make sense? So here, in fact, I I wrote a couple of statements for, for couples that are married. A woman will often say this, I want my husband to stand up for me. Ladies, look this way. He cannot stand up for you until he first stands up against you. Now you can chew on that for a while and you can get back with me on that. But Paul uses this word here with fear, phobia, trembling, tromos. And I wrote this down, it's a quote here. With fear and trembling is used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability completely to meet all the requirements, but with discipline his utmost, does his utmost to fulfill his duty. In other words, it is the picture of a bride who says, I want my husband, I respect my husband, I reverence my husband, I, I, I fear my husband, I want him to be pleased, and yet I don't have everything that is needed to please him. So I have to depend on him even to help me know how to please him. Does that make sense? So what Paul says here is what he goes on to say. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, every, everybody look this way. This is the equivalent. When Sheila and I married, I've told you, man, it was, a, it was a tough transition. I grew up in Holiday Inn. I mean, my mom, she ironed our underwear, I believe. I mean, you know, our house was spotless and clean and bless Sheila's mom's heart. She knows it. Man, there were stacks of magazines and and books and all kinds of stuff. It it was an adventure to go through the house. And and I told you, you know, when, when, when I got up one day and said, Sheila, where's this shirt, that particular shirt? She said, it's in the dryer. Cut the dryer back on and fluff it up. I said, fluff it up? What do you mean fluff it up? Aren't you gonna iron it? Oh no, it's permapress. It'll look good. Just shake it out and it'll be fine. You know, it was an adjustment. And there were times that we would communicate and I would say to her, um, if, if you want to make me happy, don't do that. Okay, I, I'm just going to tell you. Uh, I, I, please cut the cornbread. And while it's hot, would you go ahead and butter it? And you may say, well, that's kind of silly, but at the same time, I was giving. I was doing things that I wasn't accustomed to because, you know, I had never been married before. I didn't understand how you make a woman happy and I had been told you can't make them happy anyway. So why even try? That's what all the married guys told me. So you see, I was, I was having to communicate with Sheila. She was having to communicate with me for us to learn how to, how to make each other content, how to make each other happy. What God is saying is, what Paul was saying is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is in you working it out. I don't know if I'm making sense here, but it's critical. Let me think about that. God is in you. Colossians is it? Is, Colossians 1.27, Christ, listen to this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me illustrate it this way. LeBron James, who plays for the Miami Heat, right? 
uh, just, I think he's sports athlete of the year, right, this year, I think. Uh, unbelievable athlete. But imagine, and I've used this illustration before to help you understand what it means, God and you, Christ and you, the hope of glory. Imagine tonight you go to bed. Let's imagine I go to bed. I go to bed. I'm 58 years old. I go to bed, and all of a sudden, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I feel something pinch my toe. And so I kind of startle and sit up. Sheila's still asleep. And I look, and there's a shadowy figure of LeBron James standing at the foot of my bed. Now, after I faint for three times and come to, anyway, all of a sudden, LeBron James sits down on the edge of the bed and he says, Jeff, I know you're a 58-year-old white man. And I know that you can't play basketball. In fact, I know you can dribble with your right hand, but you can't dribble at all with your left hand. And I know that you're just going to get beat no matter who you play. But Jeff, I'm going to come and I'm going to live in you and I'm going to make you the greatest basketball player in the NBA. Okay, now first I think I'm gone, I've gone crazy. The next morning, and, and, and LeBron James just says, listen, all I want you to do is just you just allow me to play basketball through you. I'm going to use you, your body, to play basketball. Next morning I get up, I cut today's show on, and all of a sudden it says last night, 2 o'clock in, in the morning, LeBron James was killed in a car accident. And then I look at Sheila and I say, you know, I had the strangest thing happen to me last night. LeBron James came, pinched my toe, I woke up and told me he was going to live inside of me. And he said he'd make me the greatest 58-year-old white man who can't play basketball. He's going to make me the greatest basketball player in the NBA. So I'm going to go try out for the NBA. Sheila looks at me and says, you are crazy. And so I come and I tell you people what's happened to me. And some of the young people, they're all laughing. Oh, that's funny. You know, that's silly. That's silly. I say, well, just come on. Let's go down to the gym. And I go down to the gym. I'm a 58-year-old white man. Can't dribble, can't play, can't play basketball. And you see me running up and down the court, backwards, through my right hand, left hand, slam dunking. Boy, I just, hey, look, I just say, look, get four or five of you together and I'll take all of you on. And so then you begin to see my behavior, my actions, everything about me's changed. So the more you watch me, the more you start saying, you know what, it's weird, it's strange, I don't understand it. But you know what? I believe that the soul of LeBron James, the spirit of LeBron James is living in our pastor. <laughs> and I don't have no doubt that he's going to the NBA. Next thing you know, man, I've done convinced the Miami, Heats to, Miami Heat to pick me up. And they're sitting there astounded. Look at this 58-year-old white man all of a sudden making literally an unbelievable athlete. Are you getting it yet? Jesus said, I must needs go to the Father so that I can send the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Christ, Paul said it in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God says, I want to come live in you. You say, well, I say, look, the most moral, ethical, greatest teacher, the very power and the presence of God, Emmanuel, is now going to come and live in you. Does that make sense? Well, let me, let me move on. We've got to close in a moment. You see, it's not only obedience. If you're going to be a star for Christ, obedience is critical. 
And God's will is the catalyst. Look at verse 13 again. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good, good purpose. In other words, God's will this year, 2014, number one, you're going to say, you know, I want to live in obedience to God's word. Number two, I want to know God's will for my life and I want to do it. It's going to be the driving force of your life. Everybody look this way. When we went to Zimbabwe, Africa, we were miserable. We were miserable. We were a long way from home. We didn't understand the language. I was walking around going, Chi-Chi, Chi-Chi, what is this? They go, Bible, Bye-Betty, Bye-Betty, Shokomomwari. And I'd go, you know, and then I'd pick up something else. Chi-Chi, Chi-Chi, what is this? They even laugh, and they'd laugh at me. Look at Mafundus, Chi-Chi, which means, Pastor, what is this? They would laugh at me, and I'd go, chi-chi, and they go, gura, water, vura. And, and, and that's how I was going. And, and, and I was miserable. I couldn't preach. I couldn't communicate with people. I'm a communicator. I couldn't communicate. We were struggling with culture shock. Everything was wrong in our life. Nothing was working out, till finally there came that point that I said, God, I don't know if I'm in your will at all. God, what is your will for my life? God, what do you want me to do? Listen, I was in Sanyati at a bush hospital. We, I was with my family. We were out in a river in the middle of Africa, in a river in the middle of the bush. I'm standing there and I'm praying in my heart, God, I don't know if I'm in your will. What do you want me to do? I looked down because I felt God was saying to me, look down. When I looked down, this is the rock I was standing on. I was asking God, God, do you want me to stay in Africa or do you want me to leave? I was standing on that rock. I don't know about you, but it sure looks a lot like Africa to me. (laughs) You see, sometimes you and I need to understand that When we get serious about God, we get serious about spiritually being what God wants us to be, then obedience becomes critical and God's will becomes the catalyst. Now all of a sudden, I need to know God's will for my life because I want God to will and to do His good pleasure in me. What's His purpose? And and real quickly, you know, sometimes we get out of God's will and we want to fix it. You ever think you're out of God's will and you want to fix it? I was watching a little program on the Duggars, the ones that had the 19 children, and they lost one of them. Boy, I was glad to see that. You know, because you think sometimes some of these people are almost superhuman. 19 kids. I wonder if they ever lost one. Well, they were in an airport and lost one of them. And, 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 and the point I thought about is I watched them when that father found that little boy was this. The boy just needed to stay where he was and the father would find him. Just quit wandering around, son. Just stop and stay where you are. I'll find you. Let me say this. If you feel like you're not in God's will right now, maybe you're out of God's will, let me tell you this much. The worst thing you can do is try to fix what maybe you messed up. You know, people do that all the time. Well, I'm gonna, uh, I married the wrong person, so I'm going to get a divorce and find me somebody else. Don't fix nothing. Well, I got pregnant. I guess I need to have an abortion because, you know, this, this baby wasn't God's will. Don't fix it. Just stay where you are and wait on God. And all God's people said what? Now, real quickly, and I'm going to close. Warning number two, when you get restless, don't go out on your own. God's will is critical for your life. Number three, when you're ready to, when you're ready to do God's will, let me tell you what will be settled in your life. 
If you're serious about you being used mightily by God, these are some things that will be settled. You'll go anywhere and you'll do anything. Now, if I know my enemy right now, he did everything he could to distract you. Henry Blackaby said this, don't ask God about God's will until you're settled those two things. I'll go anywhere and I'll do anything. Okay, finally closing. Let's, let's close with this. God's way is also going to be seen in your character. Look at verse 14. Paul goes on to say to, to do everything without complaining or arguing. If God is living in you and living in me, there's not going to be a constant critical, argumentative, griping and complaining spirit. Is that not true? We don't see it in Christ. We shouldn't see it in us. And I'm trying to hurry up and close here. Paul goes on to say, look at verse 14, do everything without complaining and arguing so that you may become, look at this, blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. And look at that, in which you shine like stars in the universe. Let me tell you, one of the things that I love most about Africa was the night sky. A night sky in the bush of Africa was unbelievable. It was more stars than I've ever seen in my life. And it was constant fireworks. You could just see one shooting star after another. They were just everywhere. You just sit there. Did you see that? It was somebody, you'd be walking with somebody. Sheila and I, we'd get out and we'd walk, and she'd turn away, and I'd, say, and I'd say, look, did you see that? Look, did you see that? You just see this unbelievable canvas of stars in the black, dark, canvas sky of Africa. They would just shine and absolutely enthrall you when you looked at them. That's what you and I are to a lost world. When we make obedience a critical component of our life, when we begin to seek God's will for our life. We're willing to go anywhere, do anything. And finally, when God's way is that of the character of Christ, when we begin to exemplify that kind of character, then we become the stars in the universe. Let's stand. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you and we pray, dear Lord, even now, that we would begin to grasp and understand as your children, as followers of Christ, as we try to mirror and model your life in us, dear Lord. May we also understand that you are trying to not only work salvation in, but you are telling us to work it out. And so, Father, we pray, dear Lord, in the name of Jesus, that for every person in this room, they know what it is to have Christ living in their heart. We pray, dear Lord, that they understand what it means to, to have the power of your Holy Spirit living within us. I know that illustration of LeBron James was a very simple illustration. But I do not have the capacity to play basketball. I don't have the capacity and the ability to compete with those people who are far better than I am. There is no way that I can win that game but when, when you place within me the athletic ability, the talent, the giftedness, the strength, the accuracy 
All of those attributes that make LeBron James a great basketball player. When you put every one of those attributes in me, and you literally put his heart, his soul, his spirit within me, then in essence, over time, if I surrender and give over those areas, then I begin to play with the same ability that LeBron James plays with. Father, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Christ in you. Christ is living in us. And when we surrender to his leadership and the power of his Holy Spirit, we begin to accomplish far more than we could ever accomplish in our own strength. And so, Lord, I pray today, if there's one here that does not know you, that even in this moment that they would open up their heart and say, Lord Jesus, come in. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Let me be a vessel that you can use. Live Christ. Live your life in me. Live your life through me. God, what you're working into my heart, into my life, God, may it work out as well. May people see Jesus in me. So, Father, I pray, dear Lord, if there's one that does not know you, that even in this invitation that they would come and say, I want to be a Christian. I pray, dear Lord, for others who may be in this room, they have been on autopilot this year. It's been some time spiritually, they've just, they, they, they've just been aloof. They've been lethargic. They've been apathetic. They've been indifferent. They've drifted away from Christ. And, and, and today, spiritually, there's been a reality check. And maybe it's time to come to the altar and make a fresh commitment to Christ. There's some in this room, obedience is for the more fanatical. They think that obedience is a choice. Obedience is a real decision that we make. I decide, I make a commitment to obey the Word of God in both, both publicly and privately. I make a decision to search out, to find God's will, to be willing to go anywhere, do anything, and then to, and then to follow in God's will. I make a commitment to do everything in a Christ-like way, in that kind of character, no complaining, no arguing, but, but selling out, surrendering. God, would you speak to the hearts of people so that they make a fresh commitment in this beginning of a new year. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.